This is Ron Stockton. Somewhere along the way, I became my family historian. Actually, it's a self-appointed position. I have the interest and some research skills, so I'm a good choice. No one in our family is really famous. We have no governors or generals or famous novelists. The family story that we were descended from Richard Stockton of New Jersey, who signed the Declaration of Independence, is fantasy. The New Jersey Stocktons were famous, but we were not their relatives. Mostly, we just lived our lives and did our jobs. No matter how modest a person's life is, there are usually significant historical events happening while they are alive. My strategy of family research is not to inflate some ancestor's significance, but to identify those events of the age and the way in which we were caught up in them. In time, I hope to do a podcast on my great-great-great-grandfather who was kidnapped as a six-year-old boy and raised as an Iroquois, and my great-grandfather on my mother's side who was involved in the siege of Atlanta. But for now, I want to tell you about my sixth great-grandfather, William Carr, great-great-great-great-great-great. He was involved in one of the most significant battles of the American Revolution. It is also one of those battles that sometimes gets overlooked. When we think of the American Revolution, we think of certain legendary battles, Bunker Hill, Saratoga, Trenton. But Kings Mountain in 1790 was a definite turning point. The summer of 1790 was a bad time for the Americans. The British had captured Savannah and Charleston and thus controlled Georgia and South Carolina, at least along the coast. Lord Cornwallis planned to move inland to occupy North Carolina. This would separate the South from the rest of the colonies and make it possible to isolate and crush General Washington in the North. In May, Lieutenant Colonel Banastray Tarleton, who was 26, had defeated the Americans at Waxhaws and then bayoneted 113 survivors after they surrendered. He was going to break the resistance. At Kings Mountain, on the border of the two Carolinas, 1,100 Loyalist militia, Whigs as they were called in those days, had gathered under Patrick Ferguson, a bold, innovative British officer. The British Army was going to link up with them and move into the interior. With the South broken off from the rest of the colonies, the revolution would collapse and America would remain within the British Empire. That was the plan. But the Americans had two secret weapons and the British had not anticipated. One was the Scots-Irish and one was Nathaniel Green. First, let's talk about the Scots-Irish. To start with, they were neither Scots nor Irish. They were a distinctive ethnic group whose origins lie on the border between Scotland and England. They were marginalized politically and religiously and socially. When the English conquered Ireland in the 1600s, many of them moved into Ulster, Northern Ireland, where they hoped for a better life. But there they were once again second-class citizens. In the mid-1700s, they began to move in large numbers across the ocean into North and South Carolina, perhaps a quarter of a million. Because the English elites had already claimed the prime land on the coast, they headed for the backcountry, over the mountain, to quote the term of the day, where they could be left alone, or so they hoped. 
They brought with them their Presbyterian identity and their hostility to the English. While other immigrant groups were identified with their country of origin, the Germans, the Irish, the Scots, and so forth, the Scots-Irish resisted any national origin. They just called themselves Americans. As one scholar put it, they are a people without a name. Even today, don't hyphenate them. It just makes them mad. Kevin Phillips, in an interesting book on American history, described their culture. They were suspicious folk, hostile to bishops and kings alike. They had a biblical intensity and a sense of persecution. They were a hardy people steeled by generations on the frontier. They were very hostile to the monarchy, and when they arrived in large numbers in the decades prior to the revolution, they were natural allies of a rebellion. And the people they hated the most were their neighbors, who were aligned with the crown, the Whigs, as they were called at that time. And the Whigs hated them just as much. Phillips notes that in South Carolina during the revolution, there were 103 battles that had only Americans in combat, not a single British soldier. In North Carolina and South Carolina, the war was not Americans versus British as much as Americans versus Americans, a civil war. But if the courage and determination and brutality of the Scots-Irish was an unpleasant surprise awaiting the British, there was also a second surprise. His name was Nathaniel Green of Rhode Island. He was a close associate of George Washington, who was frustrated when Washington took him out of combat and made him quartermaster. Every time he had been put in command, he had proven himself, and he was eager to get back into battle. When two American commanders in the Carolinas fumbled the ball, Alexander Hamilton said to Washington, for heaven's sake, send Green down there. Washington did, and Green turned out to be exactly what the Americans needed. Green was persuaded by Washington's realization that the British forces were stronger, so that the best strategy would be to avoid what he called a general engagement. Thomas Paine described in his book, The Crisis, why the massive British forces guaranteed their defeat, not their victory. Let me quote. What the British have been doing is a ravage rather than a conquest. They never had, neither have they at this time, any regular plan for the conquest of America by arms. They know not how to go about it, neither have they the power to effect it if they could know. The thing is not within the compass of human practicability, for America is too extensive to be fully conquered. But she may be defended by making prisoners of an army that invades her. There is something in a war carried on by invasion which makes it different in circumstances from any other mode of war. Because he who conducts it cannot tell whether the ground he gains before him or against him. And whoever will attend the circumstances and events of a war carried on by invasion will find that any invader, in order to be finally conquered, must first begin to conquer. That was Tom Paine. Simply put, when a foreign army conquers territory, it then has to fortify it and defend that territory. As soon as they turn their heads, the local forces will recover the land. The more land they conquer, the more vulnerable they are and the closer to their ultimate defeat. Mao Zedong wrote exactly the same thing in the 1930s when he led his revolution in China. 
Under Greene's overall command, the Americans fought a series of four battles that reversed the course of the war. Today we would say that Greene was using guerrilla warfare. The Americans were always outnumbered in these battles, but the British always left the field worse off than before. These battles were Musgrove's Mill, King's Mountain, Cowpens, and Guilford Courthouse. I suspect most of you have never heard of any of them. They are as obscure as they are important. Let's go back to King's Mountain. Alas, for the British side, the Patriot forces under Isaac Shelby and John Sevier, Green wasn't present, learned of their plans of the Whigs to gather at that place to await the British regulars. They appealed to the Overmountain men, the Scots-Irish frontiersmen of the interior. Life was hard for them. Working the land was backbreaking. They fought Cherokees and rattlesnakes and were not about to let the British take away their homes. When they learned of the massacre of Waxhaws and learned that Tory loyalists were gathering at King's Mountain, they grabbed their hunting rifles and headed out. In one county, the leaders went to Presbyterian churches and mobilized the congregations. In one case, the service was disrupted by the arrival of a messenger. The pastor announced that he was suspending the sermon and heading to King's Mountain. All of the adult males in the congregation went with him. By October 7th, the Patriots were in position. Jane and I visited this place a few years ago. The battle was over in an hour, but we spent three hours at the site. There's a one-mile walk around the hill where the battle took place. Just for some perspective, it is 60 feet high and 600 yards long. Not really a mountain, more like a hill. The Tories had positioned themselves on top of the hill. The Patriot militias were in five positions around the hill. There was an electronic display of the battle in the exhibit building. Jane said, jokingly, the British should have looked at this board. They would see that it was not going to turn out well. It reminded me of that old Bob Newhart routine in the Battle of Little Bighorn as a football game. General Custer, you lost the toss. You take your men and gather in a circle in that valley. General Bull, you gather all the Indians in the world on the hills surrounding the valley and attack. Actually, the British thought they had the advantage. Not only did they have a remarkable leader in Major Ferguson, the only British citizen in the battle, but they had the defensive position. They were dug in on top of the mountain. The rebels would have to climb as they fought. Not an easy thing to do. Moreover, among the British forces were 200 American regulars from the north, trained and equipped and armed with bayonets. Those bayonets were terrifying. Local militias were really just farm guys called up for combat. They had no training and no discipline. They were not known for their courage when confronted with professional soldiers. Ferguson believed that in the face of cold steel, the rebels would flee back to their farms. Unfortunately for him, he was wrong. Those rebels believed that if they ran, their homes would not be safe, their families would not be safe, and their lives in this land would not be safe. They had spent the last few decades fighting the land for sustenance and fighting the Indians for the land. They were not about to give it up. When the fighting began, the rebels were told, each man is his own officer. They were told to use Indian tactics, to hide behind rocks and trees and to fire at will. These men knew Indian tactics. They had seen them for decades. As they, chained, as they charged, they shouted Indian war whoops, a terrifying sound to those on top of the hill. They also shouted, Buford, Buford. 
a reference to the massacre of the surrendered Americans at Waxhaws. This was an ominous sign. These men were not just fighting for victory. They were bent on vengeance. Three times the professionals with their bayonets came charging down the mountains. Three times the patriots fled, firing as they ran. Three times they gathered their forces at the bottom of the mountain and headed back up. Each time the Tories left bodies scattered about. Not only that, but Major Ferguson was a leader who led from the front. He also had on a checkered shirt. A young woman who abandoned the Tories had told the rebels that fact in exchange for her freedom. He was hit simultaneously with seven balls as he sat on a horse. By the way, there are different versions of who gave them that information. The female is, is one of the most reliable. The battle was over in an hour. But then came the shameful part, the vengeance. There was a massacre of survivors. In the end, the Patriots lost 27 men, the Tories 157. 36 leaders were given summary trials. Nine were hanged before General Shelby stopped the carnage. There were other battles in this British campaign, all localized battles involving rebel militias, all involving guerrilla tactics against the British forces. At Mus Musgrave's Mill, just before King's Mountain, the Americans were vastly outnumbered. They used a tactic as old as time. They positioned themselves in a concealed semicircle and sent out a decoy regiment to engage the British forces and then to flee in terror. The British were lured into the trap and massacred. At Cowpens, just after King's Mountain, they used another tactic called defense in depth. The land was hilly, so the rebel commanders, uh, Daniel Morgan, a very famous person, surprised everyone by putting his militias in the front ranks. He put 300 militiamen 100 yards in front, 120 of his best marksmen even further in front, and then his 600 regulars behind the two front lines. He told his militiamen to fire off two shots, targeting officers and sergeants, and then to move to the rear and serve as a reserve. Militias typically ran as soon as they saw professional soldiers, marching in lines, their terrifying sabers glistening. By telling them to fire twice and then retreat, he got two shots out of them. As they broke ranks and fled, the British thought they had a victory at hand, only to discover that the trained soldiers were hidden over the hill. One historian considers this the most innovative tactic of the whole war. Then came Guilford Courthouse. There was actually no courthouse there, but it was a field named for where a courthouse had once stood long ago. Technically, this was a British victory, given that General Green, who had not been in personal command of previous battles, retreated. But the British losses were great. The Americans lost 79 and had 185 wounded. The British lost 93 and had 408 wounded. At one point, the British situation was so perilous that Cornwallis fired cannon into his own ranks to thin out the rebel forces. In Parliament, Charles Fox said another such victory would ruin the British Army. It is said of Colonel Nathaniel Green, the hero of Guilford Courthouse, that he never won a battle in this campaign, and he, yet he was one of the great soldiers of the war, perhaps second only to Washington. As he reported, we fight, get beat, rise, and fight again. Henry Kissinger once said that when a professional army faces a guerrilla force, for the army to win, it has to defeat the guerrillas. 
For the gorillas to win, all they have to do is not lose. When these small hour-long battles were over, patriot morale was soaring. The British were discouraged and arguing among themselves. Their forces were so diminished that Cornwallis gave up his strategy and moved north to confront Washington. They met at Yorktown, and of course, that was the turning point. As a follow-up note, <clears throat> I always think numbers are revealing, so I calculated the kill ratios of Musgrove's Mill, King's Mountain, and Cowpens. The Americans lost 57, the British 330. That is a kill ratio of 5.8 to 1. Perhaps even more seriously, the British left many behind. At King's Mountain, they left 163 seriously wounded and 498 prisoners. At Cowpens, only 200 British escaped of a force of 1,100. And then came Guilford Courthouse, where the British lost a quarter of their troops. For good reason, Cornwallis moved north. I told you this was both a significant event in American history and also a significant event in my family history. So let me tell you the family story. My sixth great-grandfather, William Carr, was at Musgrove's Mill in Kings Mountain. He was in the North Carolina Continental Line, that's the state regulars. After the war, he was given a piece of land in Tennessee for what we would call veterans' benefits. 81 years later, Thomas Carr, the grandson of William Carr, was living in Albany, Kentucky, in the southeast of the state. William had two young adult sons, Delaney and Thomas Jr. His daughter, Mildred Caroline, had married Wiley Short Stockton and was no longer living in Kentucky. Mildred and Wiley were my great-grandparents. They were the first of our family to live in southern Illinois. The story of Mildred's early death, leaving behind five children, is a separate story. But back in Albany, in the summer of 1861, Thomas and his two sons signed up for the 1st Kentucky Cavalry, a, a unit led by the legendary Colonel Frank Wolford. It was the only federal force in Kentucky when the war started. Given Lincoln's statement that, I want God on my side, but I must have Kentucky, we can see the significance of that unit. Thomas served as a farrier, someone who shoes horses, while the sons were in the combat units. Thomas Jr. was soon out of the unit for reasons unknown. Delaney, lent to, lane to the family, stayed in and ended up a captain. He had some amazing adventures, which I will have to relate on another occasion. But just as a hint of things to come, one adventure was to liberate Andersonville, the Confederate prisoner of war camp. He later became a member of the state legislature and a judge. Did I mention that Thomas the father was 47 years old when he signed up? I have an image in my mind of what happened in 1861 when the South announced that it was seceding and my great-great-grandfather and his two sons decided to sign up. A conversation took place. It was in the kitchen in the evening. Light was provided by a candle or maybe a kerosene lantern. Thomas was speaking to his sons. Boys, back in 1780, my grandfather put his life on the line to create this country. And now it is our turn to do what is necessary. We are not going to sit here and watch some Southern extremists destroy this country. We are going down tomorrow to sign up with Colonel Wolford. 
I have no evidence that this conversation ever took place, but it makes a good story. And if we keep in mind the difference between fact and truth, it is almost certainly true. For those interested in more information, A Fine Study of the War in the Carolinas is The Road to Guilford Courthouse by John Buchanan. I also mentioned The Cousins War by Kevin Phillips. Both were written for a general audience and both read very well. Thank you for listening.